Chapter 52 of The Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Cowperwood reached the jail, Jaspers was there, glad to see him, but principally relieved to feel that nothing had happened to mar his own reputation as a sheriff. Because of the urgency of court matters generally, it was decided to depart for the courtroom at nine o'clock. Eddie Zanders was once more delegated to see that Cowperwood was brought safely before Judge Paterson and afterward taken to the penitentiary. All of the papers in the case were put in his care to be delivered to the warden. "'I suppose you know,' confided Sheriff Jaspers to Steger, "'that Stenner is here. He ain't got no money now, but I gave him a private room just the same.' I didn't want to put a man like him in no cell. Sheriff Jaspers sympathized with Stenner. That's right, I'm glad to hear that, replied Steger, smiling to himself. I didn't suppose, from what I've heard, that Mr. Cowperwood would want to meet Stenner here, so I've kept him apart. George just left a minute ago with another deputy. That's good. That's the way it ought to be, replied Steger. He was glad for Cowperwood's sake, that the sheriff had so much tact. Evidently, George and the sheriff were getting along in a very friendly way, for all the former's bitter troubles and lack of means. The Cowperwood party walked the distance not being great, and as they did so, they talked of rather simple things, to avoid the more serious. "'Things aren't going to be so bad,' Edward said to his father. "'Steger says the governor is sure to pardon Stenner,' in a year or less, and if he does, he's bound to let Frank out, too. Cowperwood the Elder had heard this over and over, but he was never tired of hearing it. It was like some simple croon with which babies are hushed to sleep. The snow on the ground, which was enduring remarkably well for this time of year, the fineness of the day, which had started out to be clear and bright, the hope that the courtroom might not be full, all held the attention of the father and his two sons. Cowperwood Sr. even commented on some sparrows fighting over a piece of bread, marveling how well they did in winter, solely to ease his mind. Cowperwood, walking on ahead with Steger and Zanders, talked of approaching court proceedings in connection with his business and what ought to be done. When they reached the court, the same little pen in which Cowperwood had awaited the verdict of his jury several months before, was waiting to receive him. Cowperwood Sr. and his other sons sought places in the courtroom proper. Eddie Zanders remained with his charge. Stenner and a deputy by the name of Wilkerson were in the room, but he and Cowperwood pretended not to see each other. Frank had no objection to talking to his former associate, but he could see that Stenner was diffident and ashamed. So he let the situation pass without look or word of any kind. After some three-quarters of an hour of dreary waiting, the door leading into the courtroom proper opened, and a bailiff stepped in. All prisoners up for sentence, he called. There were six, all told, including Cowperwood and Stenner. Two of them were Confederate housebreakers, who had been caught red-handed at their midnight task. Another prisoner was no more and no less than a plain horse thief, 
a young man of twenty-six, who had been convicted by a jury of stealing a grocer's horse and selling it. The last man was a Negro, a tall, shambling, illiterate, nebulous-minded black, who had walked off with an apparently discarded section of lead pipe, which he had found in a lumber yard. His idea was to sell or trade it for a drink. He really did not belong in this court at all, but having been caught by an undersized American watchman charged with the care of the property, and having at first refused to plead guilty, not quite understanding what was to be done with him, he had been perforce bound over to this court for trial. Afterward he had changed his mind, and admitted his guilt, so he now had to come before Judge Paterson for sentence or dismissal. The lower court, before which he had originally been brought, had lost jurisdiction by binding him over to the higher court for trial. Eddie Zanders, in his self-appointed position as guide and mentor to Cowperwood, had confided nearly all of this data to him as he stood waiting. The courtroom was crowded. It was very humiliating to Cowperwood to have to file in this way, along the side aisle with these others, followed by Stenner, well-dressed but sickly-looking and disconsolate. The Negro, Charles Ackerman, was the first on the list. "'How is it this man comes before me?' asked Paterson peevishly, when he noted the value of the property Ackerman was supposed to have stolen. "'Your Honor,' the assistant district attorney explained promptly, "'this man was before a lower court and refused, "'because he was drunk or something, to plead guilty. "'The lower court, because the complainant would not forego the charge, "'was compelled to bind him over to this court for trial. "'Since then he has changed his mind "'and has admitted his guilt to the district attorney. "'He would not be brought before you "'except we have no alternative.' He has to be brought here now in order to clear the calendar. Judge Paterson stared quizzically at the Negro, who obviously, not very much disturbed by this examination, was leaning comfortably on the gate or bar before which the average criminal stood erect and terrified. He had been before police court magistrates before, on one charge and another, drunkenness, disorderly conduct, and the like, but his whole attitude was one of shambling, lackadaisical, amusing innocence. "'Well, Ackerman,' inquired his honor severely, "'did you or did you not steal this piece of lead pipe as charged here? Four dollars and eighty cents worth.' "'Yes, sir, I did,' he began. "'I'll tell you how it was, Judge. I was coming along past the lumber yard one Saturday afternoon, and I hadn't been working, and I saw that piece of pipe through the fence lying inside.' and I just reached through with a piece of board I found there and pulled it over to me and took it. And afterwards, this Mr. Watchman man, he waved his hand oratorically toward the witness chair, where, in case the judge might wish to ask him some questions, the complainant had taken his stand, come around to where I live and accused me of done taking it. But you did take it, didn't you? Yes, sir, I done took it. What did you do with it? I traded it for twenty-five cents. You mean you sold it, corrected his honor. Yes, sir, I done sold it. Well, don't you know it's wrong to do anything like that? Didn't you know when you reached through that fence and pulled that pipe over to you that you were stealing? Didn't you? Yes, sir, 
I knowed it was wrong, replied Ackerman sheepishly. I didn't think twas stealin', like exactly. I done knowed it was wrong. I done knowed I oughtn't to take it, I guess. Of course you did, of course you did. That's just it. You knew you were stealing, and still you took it. Has the man to whom this Negro sold the lead pipe been apprehended yet? The judge inquired sharply of the district attorney. He should be, for he's more guilty than this Negro, a receiver of stolen goods. Yes, sir, replied the assistant. His case is before Judge Yauger. Quite right it should be, replied Paterson severely. This matter of receiving stolen property is one of the worst offenses, in my judgment. He then turned his attention to Ackerman again. Now look here, Ackerman, he exclaimed, irritated at having to bother with such a petty case. I want to say something to you, and I want you to pay strict attention to me. Straighten up there. Don't lean on that gate. You are in the presence of the law now. Ackerman had sprawled himself comfortably down on his elbows, as he would have if he had been leaning over a back fence gate talking to someone. But he immediately drew himself straight, still grinning foolishly and apologetically when he heard this. You are not so dull, but that you can understand what I am going to say to you. The offense you have committed, stealing a piece of lead pipe, is a crime. Do you hear me? A criminal offense, one that I could punish you very severely for. I could send you to the penitentiary for one year if I choose. The law says I may, one year at hard labor for stealing a piece of lead pipe. Now, if you have any sense, you will pay strict attention to what I am going to tell you. I am not going to send you to the penitentiary right now. I am going to wait a little while. I am going to sentence you to one year in the penitentiary. One year. Do you understand? Ackerman blanched a little and licked his lips nervously. And then I am going to suspend that sentence. Hold it over your head, so that if you are ever caught taking anything else, you will be punished for this offense and the next one also, at one and the same time. Do you understand that? Do you know what I mean? Tell me, do you? Yes, sir, I does, sir, replied the Negro. You're going to let me go now, that's it. The audience grinned, and his honor made a wry face to prevent his own grim grin. I'm going to let you go only so long as you don't steal anything else, he thundered. The moment you steal anything else, back you come to this court, and then you go to the penitentiary for a year and whatever more time you deserve. Do you understand that? Now I want you to walk straight out of this court and behave yourself. Don't ever steal anything. Get something to do. Don't steal, do you hear? Don't touch anything that doesn't belong to you. Don't come back here. If you do, I'll send you to the penitentiary, sure. Yes, sir. No, sir, I won't, replied Ackerman nervously. I won't take nothing more that don't belong to me. He shuffled away. After a moment urged along by the guiding hand of a bailiff, and was put safely outside the court, amid a mixture of smiles and laughter over his simplicity and Paterson's undue severity of manner. But the next case was called, and soon engrossed the interest of the audience. It was that of the two housebreakers whom Cowperwood had been and was still studying with much curiosity. In all his life before, he had never witnessed a sentencing scene of any kind. He had never been in police or criminal courts of any kind, rarely in any of the civil ones. 
He was glad to see the Negro go and gave Paterson credit for having some sense and sympathy, more than he had expected. He wondered now whether by any chance Eileen was here. He had objected to her coming, but she might have done so. She was, as a matter of fact, in the extreme rear, pocketed in a crowd near the door, heavily veiled but present. She had not been able to resist the desire to know quickly and surely her beloved's fate, to be near him in his hour of real suffering, as she thought. She was greatly angered at seeing him brought in with a line of ordinary criminals and made to wait in this, to her, shameful public manner. But she could not help admiring all the more the dignity and superiority of his presence even here. He was not even pale, as she saw, just the same firm, calm soul she had always known him to be. If he could only see her now, if he would only look so she could lift her veil and smile. He didn't, though, he wouldn't. He didn't want to see her here, but she would tell him all about it when she saw him again, just the same. The two burglars were quickly disposed of by the judge, with a sentence of one year each, and they were led away, uncertain, and apparently not knowing what to think of their crime or their future. When it came to Cowperwood's turn to be called, his honor himself stiffened and straightened up, for this was a different type of man and could not be handled in the usual manner. He knew exactly what he was going to say. When one of Mullenhauer's agents, a close friend of Butler's, had suggested that five years for both Cowperwood and Stenner would be about right, he knew exactly what to do. Frank Algernon Cowperwood called the clerk. Cowperwood stepped briskly forward, sorry for himself, ashamed of his position in a way, but showing it neither in look nor manner. Paterson eyed him as he had the others. Name, asked the bailiff, for the benefit of the court stenographer. Frank Algernon Cowperwood. Residence, 1937 Gerard Avenue. Occupation, banker and broker. Steger stood close beside him, very dignified, very forceful, ready to make a final statement for the benefit of the court and the public when the time should come. Eileen, from her position in the crowd near the door, was for the first time in her life biting her fingers nervously, and there were great beads of perspiration on her brow. Cowperwood's father was tense with excitement, and his two brothers looked quickly away, doing their best to hide their fear and sorrow. Ever convicted before? Never, replied Steger for Cowperwood quietly. Frank Algernon Cowperwood called the clerk in his nasal, sing-song way, coming forward. Have you anything to say why judgment should not now be pronounced upon you? If so, speak. Cowperwood started to say no, but Steger put up his hand. If the court pleases, my client, Mr. Cowperwood, the prisoner at the bar, is neither guilty in his own estimation nor in that of two-fifths of the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, the court of last resort in this state, he exclaimed loudly and clearly so that all might hear. One of the interested listeners and spectators at this point was Edward Malia Butler, who had just stepped in from another courtroom where he had been talking to a judge. An obsequious court attendant had warned him that Cowperwood was about to be sentenced. He had really come here this morning in order not to miss this sentence, 
but he cloaked his motive under the guise of another errand. He did not know that Eileen was there, nor did he see her. As he himself testified at the time of his trial, went on Steger, and as the evidence clearly showed, he was never more than an agent for the gentleman whose offense was subsequently adjudicated by this court, and as an agent, he still maintains, and two-fifths of the state Supreme Court agree with him, that he was strictly within his rights and privileges in not having deposited the $60,000 worth of city loan certificates at the time, and in the manner which the people, acting through the district attorney, complained that he should have. My client is a man of rare financial ability. By various letters, which have been submitted to your honor in his behalf, you will see that he commands the respect and the sympathy of a large majority of the most forceful and eminent men in his particular world. He is a man of distinguished social standing and of notable achievements. One of the most unheralded and the unkindest thrust of fortune has brought him here before you today, a fire and its consequent panic, which involved the financial property of the most thorough and stable character. In spite of the verdict of the jury and the decision of three-fifths of the state Supreme Court, I maintain that my client is not an embezzler, that he has not committed larceny, that he should never have been convicted, and that he should not now be punished for something of which he is not guilty. I trust that your honor will not misunderstand me or my motives when I point out in this situation that what I have said is true. I do not wish to cast any reflection on the integrity of the court, nor of any court, nor of any processes of the law, but I do condemn and deplore the untoward chain of events which has built up a seeming situation not easily understood by the lay mind, and which has brought my distinguished client within the purview of the law. I think it is but fair that this should be finally and publicly stated here and now. I ask that your honor be lenient, and that if you cannot conscientiously dismiss this charge, you will at least see that the facts, as I have indicated them, are given due weight in the measure of the punishment inflicted. Steger stepped back, and Judge Paterson nodded, as much as to say he had heard all the distinguished lawyer had to say, and would give it such consideration as it deserved. No more. Then he turned to Cowperwood, and summoning all his judicial dignity to his aid, he began. Frank Algernon Cowperwood, you have been convicted by a jury of your own selection of the offense of larceny. The motion for a new trial, made in your behalf by your learned counsel, has been carefully considered and overruled, the majority of the court being entirely satisfied with the propriety of the conviction, both upon the law and the evidence. Your offense was one of more than usual gravity, the more so that the large amount of money which you obtained belonged to the city, and it was aggravated by the fact that you had, in addition thereto, unlawfully used and converted to your own use several hundred thousand dollars of the loan and money of the city. For such an offense, the maximum punishment affixed by the law is singularly merciful. Nevertheless, the facts in connection with your hitherto distinguished position, the circumstances under which your failure was brought about, and the appeals of your numerous friends and financial associates will be given due consideration by this court. 
it is not unmindful of any important fact of your career. Paterson paused, as if in doubt, though he knew very well how he was about to proceed. He knew what his superiors expected of him. If your case points no other moral, he went on after a moment, toying with the briefs, it will at least teach the lesson, much needed at the present time, that the treasury of the city is not to be invaded and plundered with impunity under the thin disguise of a business transaction, and that there is still a power in the law to vindicate itself and to protect the public. The sentence of the court, he added solemnly, the while Cowperwood gazed unmoved, is therefore that you pay a fine of $5,000 to the Commonwealth for the use of the county, that you pay the costs of prosecution, and that you undergo imprisonment in the state penitentiary for the Eastern District by separate or solitary confinement at labor for a period of four years and three months, and that you stand committed until this sentence is complied with. Cowperwood's father, on hearing this, bowed his head to hide his tears. Eileen bit her lower lip and clenched her hands to keep down her rage and disappointment and tears. Four years and three months. That would make a terrible gap in his life and hers. Still, she could wait. It was better than eight or ten years, as she had feared it might be. Perhaps now, once this was really over and he was in prison, the governor would pardon him. The judge now moved to pick up the papers in connection with Stenner's case, satisfied that he had given the financiers no chance to say that he had not given due heed to their plea in Cowperwood's behalf, and yet certain that the politicians would be pleased that he had so nearly given Cowperwood the maximum, while appearing to have heeded the pleas for mercy. Cowperwood saw through the trick at once, but it did not disturb him. It struck him as rather weak and contemptible. A bailiff came forward and started to hurry him away. "'Allow the prisoner to remain for a moment,' called the judge. The name of George W. Stanner had been called by the clerk, and Cowperwood did not quite understand why he was being detained, but he soon learned. It was that he might hear the opinion of the court in connection with his co-partner in crime. The latter's record was taken. Roger O'Mara, the Irish political lawyer who had been his counsel all through his troubles, stood near him, but had nothing to say beyond asking the judge to consider Stenner's previously honorable career. George W. Stenner, said his honor, while the audience, including Cowperwood, listened attentively. The motion for a new trial, as well as an arrest of judgment in your case having been overruled, it remains for the court to impose such sentence as the nature of your offense requires. I do not desire to add to the pain of your position by any extended remarks of my own, but I cannot let the occasion pass without expressing my emphatic condemnation of your offense. The misapplication of public money has become the great crime of the age. If not promptly and firmly checked, it will ultimately destroy our institutions. When a republic becomes honeycombed with corruption, its vitality is gone. It must crumble upon the first pressure. In my opinion, the public is much to blame for your offense and others of a similar character. Heretofore, official fraud has been regarded with too much indifference. 
What we need is a higher and purer political morality, a state of public opinion, which would make the improper use of public money a thing to be execrated. It was the lack of this which made your offense possible. Beyond that, I see nothing of extenuation in your case. Judge Peterson paused for emphasis. He was coming to his finest flight, and he wanted it to sink in. The people had confided to you the care of their money, he went on solemnly. It was a high, sacred trust. You should have guarded the door of the treasury, even as the cherubim protected the Garden of Eden, and should have turned the flaming sword of impeccable honesty against everyone who approached it improperly. Your position as the representative of a great community warranted that. In view of all the facts in your case, the court can do no less than impose a major penalty. The 74th section of the Criminal Procedure Act provides that no convict shall be sentenced by the court of this commonwealth to either of the penitentiaries thereof for any term which shall expire between the 15th of November and the 15th day of February of any year, and this provision requires me to abate three months from the maximum of time which I would affix in your case, namely five years. The sentence of the court is, therefore, that you pay a fine of $5,000 to the Commonwealth for the use of the county. Paterson knew well enough that Stenner could never pay that sum, and that you undergo imprisonment in the state penitentiary for the Eastern District by separate and solitary confinement at labor for a period of four years and nine months, and that you stand committed until this sentence is complied with. He laid down the briefs and rubbed his chin reflectively, while both Cowperwood and Stenner were hurried out. Butler was the first to leave after the sentence, quite satisfied. Seeing that all was over, as far as she was concerned, Eileen stole quickly out, and after her, in a few moments, Cowperwood's father and brothers. They were to await him outside and go with him to the penitentiary. The remaining members of the family were at home, eagerly awaiting intelligence of the morning's work, and Joseph Cowperwood was at once dispatched to tell them. The day had now become cloudy, lowery, and it looked as if there might be snow. Eddie Zanders, who had been given all the papers in the case, announced that there was no need to return to the county jail. In consequence, the five of them, Sanders, Steger, Cowperwood, his father and Edward got into a streetcar which ran to within a few blocks of the prison. Within half an hour, they were at the gates of the Eastern Penitentiary. End of chapter 52